You are on the general internal medicine consult service when you are asked to see an otherwise healthy 62-year-old gentleman with subacute dyspnea and unintentional weight loss. Initial investigations are significant for an elevated BNP, an AKI, and normocytic anemia. In the workup of his anemia, you find an elevated kappa to lambda ratio, an M-spike on serum electrophoresis. The diagnosis of multiple myeloma is later confirmed on bone marrow biopsy. In further workup of his dyspnea, a transesophageal echocardiogram reveals a non-dilated left ventricle with increased wall thickening and diastolic dysfunction. Cardiac MRI is in keeping with restrictive cardiomyopathy. You suspect amyloidosis, so you order an abdominal fat pad biopsy. This reveals positive amyloid staining by Congo Red on electron microscopy, in keeping with the diagnosis of AL amyloidosis in the setting of multiple myeloma. Today, your patient has AL amyloidosis and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Staining Congo Red, an Approach to AL Amyloidosis. All right, time for a minute physiology. Amyloidosis is a disease in which aggregates of misfolded proteins, known as amyloid fibrils, deposit in extracellular tissues and organs, leading to damage and dysfunction. Amyloid fibrils may remain at the site of production, leading to localized amyloidosis, or can circulate in the blood and deposit in a variety of extracellular tissues and organs, leading to systemic amyloidosis. There are many different types of amyloidosis, each differentiated by the specific protein that makes up the underlying amyloid fibril. Over 30 human amyloidogenic proteins have been identified. Despite differences in structure and function, each type of amyloid fibril forms a beta-pleated sheet structure that stains with Congo red and shows apple green birefringence under polarized light. The most common type of amyloidosis is immunoglobulin light chain amyloidosis, also known as AL amyloidosis. The amyloidogenic protein that leads to AL amyloidosis is a monoclonal immunoglobulin light chain. AL amyloidosis can result from any plasma cell disorder that produces monoclonal light chains, such as monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS, multiple myeloma, or lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. The amyloidogenic immunoglobulin light chains, or light chain fragments, can accumulate and aggregate in various tissues and result in organ dysfunction. AL amyloidosis can affect many different organ systems, including renal, cardiac, gastrointestinal, and pulmonary. A second type of amyloidosis is called AA amyloidosis. The amyloid fibril in AA amyloidosis is derived from serum amyloid A protein, which is an acute phase reactant. Patients with AA amyloidosis typically have an underlying inflammatory disorder, such as rheumatoid arthritis, an underlying chronic infection, such as tuberculosis, or an underlying neoplasm. AA amyloidosis most commonly affects the kidneys, frequently resulting in nephrotic syndrome, though other organs may be involved, especially as the disease progresses. Management of AA amyloidosis is typically targeted at controlling the underlying inflammatory condition 
infection, or malignancy. A third type of amyloidosis is called wild-type transthyretin systemic amyloidosis, or ATTRWT amyloidosis. This was previously called senile systemic amyloidosis. This type of amyloidosis is due to the deposition of otherwise normal or wild-type transthyretin, or TTR, in the myocardium. It is associated with aging and most commonly manifests as infiltrative cardiomyopathy, leading to signs and symptoms of heart failure. Cardiac amyloidosis is typically treated with loop diuretics and tafamidus, a transthyretin stabilizer. Hereditary amyloidosis, also known as familial amyloidosis, is a group of rare genetic disorders in which mutations in certain genes cause the abnormal production of amyloid fibrils. There are at least 10 forms of hereditary amyloidosis. One example is hereditary transthyretin, or ATTR variant. This was formerly known as mutant ATTR and is due to a mutation in the transthyretin gene. Patients with ATTR variant amyloidosis commonly present with cardiomyopathy. The last type of systemic amyloidosis that we will talk about is dialysis-related amyloidosis, which is caused by accumulation of beta-2 microglobulin in patients with end-stage renal disease. This type of amyloidosis commonly affects osteoarticular structures. Common clinical manifestations include shoulder pain due to periarthritis and rotator cuff infiltration, as well as neck pain due to destructive spondyloarthropathy. Kidney transplant is considered the definitive management for dialysis-related amyloidosis. On to our clinical presentation. In this podcast, we will focus on the presentation, diagnosis, and management of AL amyloidosis specifically. In AL amyloidosis, amyloid fibrils can deposit in many different extracellular tissues and organs leading to a wide variety of clinical presentations. At the time of diagnosis, over two-thirds of patients will have more than one affected organ system. In AL amyloidosis, the kidney is the most frequently affected organ. AL amyloidosis can present as asymptomatic proteinuria or even nephrotic syndrome. If amyloid deposits in the renal blood vessels or tubules, it can cause renal failure with little to no proteinuria. The heart is the second most commonly affected organ. AL amyloidosis can present as restrictive cardiomyopathy, typically characterized by thickening of the interventricular septum and ventricular wall, with preserved ejection fraction as seen on echocardiogram or cardiac MRI. Elevation in BNP is a marker of cardiac involvement and can be seen before the onset of heart failure symptoms. Amyloidosis can also lead to palpitations and syncope due to arrhythmia or heart block. Though rare, AL amyloidosis can lead to angina due to the accumulation of amyloid in the coronary arteries. The ECG in patients with AL amyloidosis may show decreased QRS amplitude, conduction abnormalities, or atrial fibrillation. If AL amyloidosis affects the gastrointestinal system, the patient may have hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, with or without functional consequences. The patient may have hepatomegaly or splenomegaly or both, with or without any functional impairment. One quarter of patients will exhibit a cholestatic pattern of elevated liver enzymes. AL amyloidosis can also cause gastroparesis, malabsorption, constipation, or diarrhea. 
AL amyloidosis may also present with cutaneous musculoskeletal or neurologic manifestations. Patients may have waxy thickening of skin, easy bruising, or subcutaneous nodules. Periorbital purpura, commonly known as raccoon eyes, elicited by a valsalva maneuver or minor trauma is a rare but characteristic manifestation of AL amyloidosis. Amyloid can deposit in skeletal muscles, causing enlargement, or it can deposit in the tongue, causing macroglossia and lateral tongue scalloping. Patients may also present with length-dependent mixed sensory and motor peripheral neuropathy, paresthesias, numbness, or carpal tunnel syndrome. AL amyloidosis can also present as a bleeding diaphysis. Patients may have prolonged or increased bleeding due to liver infiltration, reduced activity of factor 10, and or vascular infiltration by amyloid. Patients may also present with anemia or thrombocytopenia. Finally, patients with AL amyloidosis may exhibit constitutional symptoms, including fatigue and weight loss. In general, amyloidosis should be part of the differential diagnosis for any patient presenting with multi-organ disease or constitutional symptoms. As the signs and symptoms of amyloidosis are generally nonspecific, establishing the diagnosis can be difficult, and early diagnosis requires a high index of clinical suspicion. Let's talk about our investigations. If AL amyloidosis is suspected based on the initial history and physical examination, a basic blood work panel should be ordered, including a CBC, metabolic panel, renal function tests, liver function tests, and inflammatory markers. A urinalysis is helpful to screen for renal involvement by assessing for hematuria and proteinuria. A BNP and troponin can be used to screen for cardiac involvement. Serum protein electrophoresis with immunofixation, or SPEP, 24-hour urine protein electrophoresis with immunofixation, or UPEP, and serum-free light chain should be ordered to screen for a monoclonal gammopathy. In addition, investigation should be ordered based on the patient's initial presenting symptoms and suspected organ involvement. For example, if a patient presents with signs and symptoms of heart failure, a BNP and transthoracic echocardiogram should be ordered. Later in this podcast, we will discuss further investigations recommended once a diagnosis of AL amyloidosis is established. The diagnosis of AL amyloidosis is based on both immunohistochemistry and evidence of systemic disease. Diagnosis always requires evidence of a monoclonal protein, and therefore, SPEP, UPEP, and free light chain should be obtained. In addition, one or more tissue samples must be obtained to determine the presence of a plasma cell dyscrasia and monoclonal protein, as well as the presence of amyloid fibril deposition. Biopsy site options include the bone marrow, abdominal fat, salivary gland, rectum, or any organ with suspected involvement. Biopsies are sent for immunohistochemical staining, including kappa and lambda plasma cell surface protein markers, as well as for Congo red staining. The diagnostic criteria for AL amyloidosis is based on the International Myeloma Working Group. To make a diagnosis of AL amyloidosis, all of the following four criteria must be present. First, there must be evidence of an amyloid-related systemic syndrome, for example, renal, liver, heart, 
GI tract or peripheral nerve involvement that cannot be explained by another diagnosis. Second, there must be positive amyloid staining by Congo red in any tissue or the presence of amyloid fibrils on electron microscopy. Third, there must be evidence that the amyloid is related to an underlying light chain. This can be determined by either direct examination of the amyloid using mass spectrometry or by immunoelectron microscopy. Lastly, there must be evidence of a monoclonal plasma cell proliferative disorder, for example, presence of a serum or urine M protein, an abnormal serum-free light chain ratio, or clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow. Once a definitive diagnosis of AL amyloidosis is established based on the above criteria, further investigation should be performed, if not already completed, to determine the extent of organ involvement and to aid in pretreatment evaluation and prognostication. To assess for renal involvement, 24-hour urine for protein electrophoresis, creatinine, EGFR, and serum albumin to look for hypoalbuminemia should be completed. To assess for cardiac involvement, a troponin, BNP, electrocardiogram, transthoracic echocardiogram, and cardiac MRI should be performed. ALP is a useful screening test for liver involvement. Hepatomegaly and splenomegaly should be assessed for using ultrasound or CT. In addition, patients with symptoms of gastroparesis should undergo gastric emptying studies. PT and PTT should be ordered to screen for coagulopathy. If abnormal, or if a patient is experiencing abnormal bleeding, factor 10 levels should also be sent. Patients with neurologic symptoms should undergo electromyography and nerve conduction studies. These tests are often normal in patients with AL amyloidosis, since the typical neuropathy is a small fiber neuropathy. Now that we have discussed the clinical presentation and diagnosis of AL amyloidosis, we'll shift gears and talk about prognosis and management. There is currently no cure for AL amyloidosis. Therefore, the goal of treatment is to manage symptoms, reduce the plasma cell clonal burden, prevent further amyloid deposition into organs, and thus improve survival. The prognosis of AL amyloidosis varies by the nature and extent of organ involvement, as well as by the presence of comorbidities. The 2012 Mayo guidelines use troponin, BNP, and DFLC or also known as the difference between the involved and uninvolved serum-free light chains, to stage and prognosticate AL amyloidosis. Cardiac troponin T greater than or equal to 0.025 micrograms per liter, or high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T greater than or equal to 40 nanograms per liter, NT proBNP greater than or equal to 1,800 nanograms per liter, or a BNP greater than or equal to 400 nanograms per liter and a DFLC greater than or equal to 18 mg per deciliter are each considered risk factors. Patients with no risk factors are considered to have stage 1 amyloidosis. Patients with one risk factor have stage 2 disease. Patients with two risk factors have stage 3 disease. And patients with three risk factors have stage 4 disease. Hematologists from Boston University developed a similar staging system in 2009 using the troponin and BNP. Based on their model, patients with stage 1 disease have a median overall survival greater than 12 years, 
while patients with stage 4 disease have a median overall survival of one year. Let's move on to treatment. We will first talk about the indications for treatment. Most patients with systemic AL amyloidosis will require treatment. An exception to this is patients in whom AL amyloid is discovered incidentally in the bone marrow as part of evaluation for MGUS or smoldering multiple myeloma. Rather than beginning treatment immediately, these patients should be monitored every three months for clinical and biochemical progression or early organ involvement. Further, patients with isolated sites of AL amyloidosis may not need systemic treatment, such as those with isolated tracheobronchial AL amyloidosis. Most other patients with AL amyloidosis will require systemic treatment with guidance from a hematologist. When establishing a treatment plan for patients, you must first determine if a patient is a candidate for autologous stem cell transplant. Eligibility is determined on a case-by-case basis. However, patients usually must meet the following criteria to be eligible for an autologous stem cell transplant. Age less than 70, BNP less than 5,000 nanograms per milliliter, systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 100 millimeters of mercury, creatinine clearance greater than 30 mils per minute, ejection fraction greater than 45%, DLCO greater than 50% on a pulmonary function test, a score of two or lower on the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group Performance Status, or ECOG status, and an NYHA functional class of one or two. Patients who are eligible for stem cell transplant typically first undergo induction therapy with cyborg chemotherapy, which consists of cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. Induction therapy is followed by conditioning chemotherapy with high-dose milfalin and autologous stem cell transplant. If a satisfactory response is not achieved after stem cell transplant, certain patients may undergo consolidative chemotherapy with bortezomib or second-line chemotherapy. Only approximately 20% of patients with AL amyloidosis are eligible for stem cell transplant. Those who are not eligible for autologous stem cell transplant typically receive daratumumab if available in combination with cyborg therapy. Other options for treatment include triple therapy with bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, or carfizolmib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. In the past number of years, treatment approaches for amyloidosis have been changing with the increase in available chemotherapy regimens. With these advances, stem cell transplants for amyloidosis are much less common than they previously were. Now, only a minority of patients receive stem cell transplants for AL amyloidosis. Patients whose disease is refractory to first-line therapy or who relapse are managed with alternative combinations of antimyeloma drugs, including CD38 monoclonal antibodies, proteasome inhibitors, immunomodulatory drugs, or other novel agents. As AL amyloidosis is a systemic disease with multi-organ involvement, it is crucial that patients are referred to relevant specialists as needed. In particular, patients should be followed by cardiology and nephrology when there is cardiac or renal involvement, respectively. After therapy, patients are typically followed monthly with regular serum protein electrophoresis and serum-free light chain assays. Blood work, such as BNP and liver function tests, and imaging are used to assess organ response to treatment. The specific tests used and frequency of testing is based on known organ involvement and clinical condition and severity. 
Response to treatment includes both organ response and hematologic response. Response criteria have been created and validated by the Roundtable on Clinical Research in Immunoglobulin Light Chain Amyloidosis. Complete hematologic response to treatment is defined as normalization of the free light chain levels and ratio, as well as negative serum and urine immunofixation. Cardiac response is determined by change in BNP or NYHA class. Kidney response to treatment is determined by change in 24-hour urine protein, creatinine, and creatinine clearance. Liver response is based on change in ALP and liver size. Response in the peripheral nervous system is based on improvement in EMG nerve conduction velocity. In conclusion, AL amyloidosis presents with a wide range of clinical manifestations, which can be encountered in both inpatient and outpatient settings, and in a variety of specialties. Given its wide range of clinical presentations and high mortality when untreated, it is crucial that practitioners in all settings maintain a high index of suspicion to facilitate early diagnosis and initiation of treatment. In recent years, many interventional trials for AL amyloidosis have been initiated, and new therapies continue to emerge. Time for a Medicine Minute. The first reported case of amyloidosis is believed to have occurred in 1639. A man named Nicholas Fontanus completed an autopsy on a young man with ascites, jaundice, and epistaxis. The spleen was reported to be enlarged and filled with white stones. This may have been the first discovered case of amyloid infiltration of the spleen. It was named sago spleen since the white and gray amyloid deposits resembled a type of starch called sago. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work, entitled Staining Congo Red, An Approach to AL Amyloidosis. This episode was written by Dr. Rosalind Mainland, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Bethany Monteith, hematology, and Dr. Zijing Wu, general internist. This episode was recorded by Dr. Allison Lai. Sound editing by Dr. Margaret Zen. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Zarma Rally, and Leah Karyanopoulos. As always, we have an associated infographic and resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>